Hello and welcome to episode four of Sam Green Race Engineering. I'm Sean Smith of Stable Automotive and I'm joined as usual by my co-host Sam Green. Hello. And today, Sam, because we are inventive people, we're going to be talking about exciting stuff. We're going to be talking about the art of overtaking. We certainly are. Um, obviously, overtaking is um, relatively important in motorsports, especially when it's many cars on the track on the same track at once. Uh, not so important on time trials, but luckily, we're not going to talk about that. No. Um, so, art of overtaking, obviously, it's a big topic in Formula One and other major motorsports right now. Um, how best to overtake, what um, different factors there are, what causes it. And essentially, we're just going to go through everything that we can think of about overtaking and uh, and uh, bore the viewers to death with that. So then they'll know. They can watch They can watch Sky Sports F1 and go, ah, I know. I know what that means, Exactly. Yes. Right then, seeing as this was your, I think it was your, was it your idea or my idea in the start? Uh, I don't know, I can't remember, it's definitely one of our ideas. Yeah, one or two. Um, I think you posed it to me like six months ago and then we just didn't bother looking at it again. Well, yeah, I think that was probably it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> let's crack on and do this. So Sam, uh, what do you want to start on overtaking? So I think we'll start, basically, the idea of an overtake, as silly as this sounds, is to better your position on the circuit by dispatching another driver, getting them out of the way, getting them behind you. It, an overtake isn't barging your way through. Unless it's stock car racing. Well, that's obviously a slightly different, especially just in closed wheel racing, you can get away with a lot more contact without it being catastrophic. I'll get the wrong words out in a sec. I still maintain that a clean overtake is far better than a messy one yeah. with lots of body contact and rubbing is racing is a good mentality, but it doesn't have to be like that. Obviously, you with your uh, your job at Rye House teaching the young drivers of the future, obviously how to overtake cleanly, fairly, and effectively is, um, I suppose, one of your uh, your key topics, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, with with um, with uh, karting is an open wheel formula. So if you clip wheels, you're going to get hurt, um, and you don't want that. So you want to try and get through as cleanly as you possibly can, mm. but you can't waste time, and we'll come into that as well. Yeah. So as, as you say, that um, overtaking is the form of getting past one's opponent and improving one's position. But as we will found in this podcast, there are multiple different factors depending on the discipline which you are trying to do the overtake in, uh, yes. depending on the car, the track, um, the ethos of the motorsport you're doing. There's a lot, and yeah, and also what era of the history you are in. So um, of course. let's, let's um, start with the different types of overtaking that can be done, that we managed to list off literally about two minutes. Um, if you look at Formula One, which is obviously the one that everyone will probably know about, um, you'll know that the they have a lot of aids these days. Uh, most, most most modern motorsports now do have aids to overtake. Um, these include the drag reduction system or DRS. Um, obviously, opening up the rear wing flap to uh, reduce drag to help you gain more straight line speed. IndyCar has pushed a pass, um, which is literally a button to give you more turbo boost to push you forward to um, give you more power than your opponent. Um, and those are the sort of what you might call the unnatural methods. The, uh, the, um, the yeah, that's what they are. They're unnatural methods of overtaking. They're, they're, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but there are also a lot of what I would call old school um, and natural overtaking methods, such as slipstreaming. Yes. Slipstreaming, which we're going to we're going to spend more time on this. Slipstreaming, um, selling the dummy, uh, boxing cars in, setting up um, during uh, getting out corners and things like that. Braking is also one thing, power is another, and that's what we're going to go through today. Yeah, so, absolutely. Sorry, Sam, where would you like to start? Which um, overtaking method would you like to discuss first? Well, I think we'll start with an easy one. Uh, we'll start with slipstreaming. Yeah. So, obviously, a slipstream is, as you follow a car at speed, that car punches a hole in the air uh, and reduces the pressure behind it because of that. Yeah. So... By you following them closely enough, you will gain a bit of straight line speed because you've got less air resistance, yep. so you can naturally go faster. Now, obviously, there will come a point, if you don't overtake, where you just crash into the person in front of you. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's called a bump draft, if you're on a straight. And that is usually, in most forms of motorsport, that is legal. You wouldn't necessarily want to do it in all sports. For example, in Formula One, it probably wouldn't work very well. You'd probably just end up breaking your front wing. But in things like even karting, and especially in closed cockpit touring cars or in NASCAR, you see it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can really, really help gain a lot of straight line speed. And if you work as a pair, you can usually gain up two or three places on cars around you. Yeah, you see it in NASCAR where you get a chain of four or five cars pushing each other along. Yeah, precisely. And they go ten, 10 to 15 mile an hour faster than precisely everybody around them. Because it does affect the car in front as well. When you have a train of um, cars <clears> doing that, if there's a leader, say, five seconds up the road, not just you know, seemingly by himself, a group, it's like a peloton in Tour de France, a group of yes. cars will suck in essentially the the, dri the driver in front because they're they're working together and making a more efficient chain of um, aerodynamic benefits um of course aerodynamic slipstreaming um is dependent very much on actually altitude of the track so you can, because obviously where the air is thicker towards the surface of the, the earth um you have more of a slipstream effect because there's more variation from the car that's gone through it beforehand Whereas we see in, say, Mexico, for example, where the air is very thin, the slipstream effect difference is um, vastly reduced. And, yes. Um, so, I mean, also it depends what, what country, sort of country it is. If it's a very, um, if the air is very dense, say, if it's, um, if, the, if there's been a weather system going through, they'll have the air will be thicker. And it'll be yeah. There's, there's a lot of uh, environmental variation on slipstreaming. Yeah. Um, which is impressive so was it where was i going with that so yeah slipstreaming it's the <laughs> it's the um basically it's the the bread and butter of overtaking basically in the modern era sort of since the 70s really um slipstreaming has been the the easiest way to gain a position and the most logical way to sort of drag it behind pull out because you're already your engines are high rpm you can go faster and you you can you do the overtake yeah, it's really, really easy. You just chase, 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 pop out, and away you go. Yeah. Um, but of course, a big factor with um, natural slipstream overtaking can be completely fo foiled if the other driver in front of you does not uh, cooperate. They block off the corner you're trying to uh, block off the line you're trying to uh, to steal when you do the pullout. Yes, so that kind of leads us on to the next one, I think, which is the dummy. Yes. 
or the fake, as it's sometimes known. Yep. Which is why, for example, if you're slipstreaming down the straight, you might move to the right-hand side, and the driver you're trying to overtake that obviously doesn't want you to go past will move to the right-hand side as well. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where the rules come in. In a lot of forms of motorsport, if they move across, they can't immediately come back again if you move back. Yeah. So this is where knowing your regulations comes in handy because you can do this fake where you move to the right-hand side and then snap back to the left as they move across, and that's going to work well. What you have to remember is you're reacting before they are. They're reacting to you moving, and then as soon as they move, you can react again. Yeah. So but they then can't because you're already alongside them. Generally speaking, it's um, you can always... Um... You have to be proactive in your defence. Is what the yes. is what the, um, yeah. the the front the front driver has to do. The the driver following pretty much can place the car wherever they want. Um, yeah. But it is always the case. It's been the case since I say at least the nineties that the the leading driver has to be the one that's proactively making the movement. They can't they can't be watching their mirrors drifting across into and into a uh, into the uh, the blocking position. Yeah, I mean we call it weaving. Certainly in karting, you're not allowed to do weaving, so you can't come down the straight making three or four changes of direction. Yeah. Um, you can, by all means, make one to defend, and then in most rule sets, you're allowed to move back to the, the apex, so just before you turn in, you can move back again. That wouldn't be classed as weaving necessarily, but you have to remember where the other driver is. Yeah, you can't. So if, they, if they've got that speed and they've moved to the left, you can't claim, oh, I was trying to get to the braking point and ram them off the road. Yeah, that's, that's where the rule of um, leaving a car's width um, often comes yes. in. racing room, yeah. Racing room, that's, that's, that's the biggest grey area. Leave racing room. That's the best grey area, I think, in motorsport, where you have to leave racing Absolutely room. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, so that's all, so, so still in the dummy, that's, of course, it's a very uh, extravagant thing to see on TV. Um, obviously, it's very of, dramatic. Yes. It looks re- it looks really good. Some of the best ones we see, sort of like from the '90s, when we see um, sort of Nigel Mansell at Silverstone on Nelson Piquet back in like '91 or two or something um, down the Hangar Straight. And there's other examples through the years of that sort of basically getting a slipstream, making them think they're going towards the right, having the driver in front to go that way, and just swing around the outside. It's it's always the uh, or sometimes vice versa because sometimes the racing line can be on the wrong side of the track so to speak um yeah so that's depending on which way the driver is um faked too i think in indycar they call it the pruitt fake i don't know why but um it's exactly the same concept um it's probably named after someone in indycar as it most things are wouldn't surprise me at all um so let's very quickly move on to boxing in which is essentially when a dri- when you're do- do- coming to lap up lap the field or if you're in a a group battle of fighting um, you use the either the track or the drivers around you to your advantage to force the overtake yeah so so this would be you would for example in something like uh, WEC two prototypes go wheel to wheel if you can get alongside just as there's a GT car you're approaching a GT car you know you're going to be faster than that GT car and 99% of the time they're going to leave you a bit of space um <laughs> because they can see you coming. The other car that you're alongside then doesn't really have anywhere to go, so they have two options. They can either hit the GT car or back out of 
the overtake, and or, then you're past. Or sometimes they can also they can just try and ram you <laughs> out the way of the line. <laughs> or that, yeah, which does happen um, occasionally. But again, closed wheel formulas is a lot more body contact. Sure. I will maintain that. But things like, for example, if uh, in in open wheel on in Formula One, let's narrow it down even more. Let's face it, the Williams are a bit slow at the moment. <laughs> if Hamilton and Vettel were closing the gap to Kubica ahead of them, Kubica is going to get blue flags. He can only go one way, really. He can't disappear. On a tight circuit, somewhere like Monaco, for example, if he was being lapped, he would try to stay off the racing line, but that still leaves you not a lot of space. Mm. So that's only really one car's width. There's yeah. nowhere at Monaco that I can think of you could go three cars wide. Uh, not without a very big crash, no. No. So that would mean whoever has their nose ahead out of Vettel or Hamilton at the point they catch him up is going to get ahead. Now a lot of people would say, "Well, that's the back marker's fault," but he can't go. He can't just disappear. Yeah. Um, he's trying to stay out of the way. He's not trying to defend, but there's only so much you can do. Um, and from whoever ends up in front, that's a a good bit of planning. This is where things like team radio and and other more and less obvious overtaking aids will come in, where the teams will be on the radio and saying, "Right, you're approaching this back marker." Just think where are you, you're probably going to catch them at the swimming pool chicane or whatever, because they can trace how much faster you are so they can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so little things like that <clears throat> can make a good bit of difference. But that's also, maybe not on Monaco because of how enclosed it is, but at other circuits, the further you look ahead at things like that, the better you're going to be equipped when you actually get to the situation. Yeah. And that can be the same for overtaking, not just back markers, but other competitors as well. Yeah. If you can close the gap and you know you're faster at turn three than that driver, you can overtake them there, or you can close the gap further there. So you would want to try and line up an overtake coming into turn two or coming out of turn two so that you've then got that benefit as you go faster through turn three. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 a. That's, I'm glad you brought that sort of example up actually, because when you look at the boxing in dummies and also the slipstream we've we've been watching and natural overtaking, the I think one of the principal examples is Mick Hacken and Michael Schumacher at Spa in I think it was 1998 or something or 2000 yeah. around that sort of era, one of those three years, um, when they re- overtook Ricardo Zonta, I think it was, um, I think it was. in the BAR. Um, so it must have been 2000 then. Because BR didn't exist before then, so and that was at Spa down the Kemmel Straight. Zonta stayed in the middle of the track, um, and basically Michael went, I think, to the outside. Uh, Mika went to the inside. They both overtook either side of Zonta, and then it ended up being uh, one of the drivers having the advantage into the uh, the chicane, um, which was, I think, when you, if you, I don't know what you, how you tend to visualise with your karting people, Sam, but. Uh, that would be a pretty good case study, I think, for basically how slipstreaming works, how planning your move works, and how what, using traffic to your advantage is also a uh, a key aspect. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with that example, the Ferrari and the McLaren were significantly quicker than the car they were lapping. Yeah. However, if you watch, I think uh, coming up over, I think it was Hackenden behind, wasn't it? Yeah. 
So if you watch the onboard from Hakkinen, he is behind Schumacher, and then as they come onto the straight, Schumacher is tucking in behind Zonta to pick up a bit of slipstream. Mm-hmm. But obviously Hakkinen then has a double slipstream effect and gets even more. So when he comes out of that slipstream, there's a bit more emphasis on it. Yeah. So um, you can't really see that it actually, I'll tell you what's quite a good example going back to slipstreaming. Um, at Baku mm-hmm. at the weekend, we saw it to a huge effect, especially in qualifying, and especially of how time, much sorry. the slipstream can actually help. Yes. Um, I was watching, I saw one of the onboards, I, I can't remember who it was now, it could well have been um, one of the Red Bulls, was in the slipstream oh, of yeah. Lance Stroll. Gasly. Yeah, coming Gasly. into that final section and he picked up the slipstream and as soon as he popped out of that slipstream just after the lap the car slowed down yeah you heard the engine note drop because he had yeah. all the resistance coming back onto the aero and the the uh, honda engine which was probably pushing it <laughs> what it could do well potentially but that was that and that was with drs open yeah and then he braked so there was that difference just in the air resistance slowing the car down and obviously, there's, there comes a point where if that was in the race, he would have had to pull out or he would have crashed into the other car. As uh, some Red Bull It's the did. same sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's precisely it. Because we saw, I think, when I was watching the uh, that qualifying session, uh, Gasly seemed to gain approximately three or four tenths over what Verstappen did a couple of minutes later. Yeah. Um, so it... It was it was equivalent to about 10 kilometers per hour. Yeah. Or it was huge. Um, yeah, so that's so that's point. So slips. Uh, this is the this isn't so much the art I've ever taken. This is more the slipstream effect and the effect which it can have in a race. As we saw, I don't know if you watched the Formula Two race at the weekend, Sam. I didn't get to see it, unfortunately. That's fine. I'm not going to spoil it, but it was basically just slipstream city for the for the <laughs> entire entire race. Um, and we saw on, on a couple of the restarts, we saw basically because of the slipstream being so effective. Um, the lead driver would not put his foot to the floor, or her, because was, there, there, was, there was a female racer. They, would, they wouldn't put their foot to the floor until basically the start line, just so the slipstream effect didn't have time to work. Because obviously slipstreaming is dependent on the amount of uh, air that's being displaced, which is obviously higher when you're going <coughs> faster. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's um, those, those are the sort of the natural, the, the, those are the modern natural um, um, overtaking scenarios but if we go back so obviously yeah let's just, let's just quickly tie us back into karting so obviously around a track like Rye House which has a, a relatively long straight um, yeah. slipstreaming has some effect but it's not anything like what you'd see on um, on F1 for example is it? No well as much as anything obviously a kart doesn't displace as much air just one because it's smaller two there's no downforce mm-hmm. as such although it's starting to come into karting um, and obviously the track is a lot smaller as well. If you go to, there is still that effect. And if you go to a circuit like um, PFI up in Grantham up north, where the the straights are a lot longer, uh, um, and I mean the, this circuit is so huge for a karting track, it makes Rye House look like a playground. It's huge, um, and the carts, even the Honda Cadets, are topping out they're at nearly sort of 55 to 60 mile an hour so they're going fast um and if you're in that slipstream effect it will help you um but you have to be closer 
that's the problem. Because you're not going as fast and there's no downforce and the things are smaller, to get into that slipstream, you have to be a lot closer to the guy in front of you. Yeah. You do still feel it. Um, and especially in sort of the senior cars now, with they're starting to build more aerodynamic fairings. Um, and the, the new Tony car, I don't know if I've shown you a photo of it or not, Sean, but the new Tony car actually generates downforce. Really? Okay. Um, at the front end, which is at a track like Briar House, probably not really worth running, but somewhere like PFI or another, or some of the European circuits, which are a lot faster and have a lot more grip, would definitely be worth running. Um, it looks pretty ugly. I'm not really a fan of it, but it, it does a job. It does a job, yeah. Uh, there was one um, natural uh, art of overtaking sort of thing I forgot to mention. That was, of course, overall racing. Um, and the particular overall racing is a completely different um, kettle of fish, I suppose, compared to uh, what you call classic on track racing. Because obviously the cars have much less downforce in the first place, um, and they, basically all they do is bump draft, slipstream. Um, you sometimes see pack racing, which is I think the best spectacle in the world. Um, so yes. Some people don't like it because it's a bit dangerous, but you know that, that's noticeable for you. I'd say it's hugely dangerous, but it's kind of worth it. Yeah, it, it looks amazing. But the particular point I wanted to look at on oval racing was um, stealing the air off a following driver's front wing once you affected an overtake. So obviously, when you go to a place like Fontana or sometimes Indy, uh, as it is going to be the month of May when this is uh, live. Um, what will happen is that a driver will come around the outside of another one, or indeed the inside, and what they will do is cut straight into the lane which the the driver they've just overtaken has been have been using. And what you'll then see is the driver lose their front downforce because their the air has been displaced, and they'll suddenly start either understeering chaotically towards a wall, or they'll have to like just get off the throttle in order to steady the car back up. Um, and that's obviously a very um, effective. That is literally an art of overtaking, I suppose, because it's um, it's an invisible um, it's an invisible method, I suppose, of of affecting uh, an overtake. Yeah, I mean that's that's essentially slowing the other guy down, isn't it? So that's a, a really good way of getting past. If you can get just in front, you don't even have to be that much quicker, and it can be coming onto a well, ninety nine percent of the time on an oval, it will be coming onto a straight. If you can get on the low side, which is usually the left. Um, on an oval, you can usually get up the inside if you've had a decent draft down the last straight. Yeah. So somewhere like Indy, like we're pretty, like we're saying, um, if you can get a, a draft down the pit straight and get underneath them at turn one, by the time you get in front of them, they're going to have to back off at turn two, like yeah. we were just saying, because that low pressure then affects the front. The, if we, well, in Formula One, it's quite often called dirty air. Mm -hmm where you get drivers following and the dirty air means they can't go around the corners quite so fast but on the straights they're quicker so there's that flip side of it it's a lot more prevalent probably on oval racing because of the closeness of the walls um and equally you're going no most of the time a lot faster especially in something an like indy car you go through the corner at 200 mile an hour and not just down the straights um, but if you, um, Maggots and Beckett's at Silverstone would be a good example of this. Yep. If you have three corners in very quick succession and then three cars going into it, the guy at the front is going to be a lot faster because of the dirty air that he's then creating for the guys behind yeah, him. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Um, 
yeah, so that's yeah. I think that pretty much now covers the the natural overtaking methods. Um, so we let's have go. got um, the one that was made Lewis Hamilton slightly famous uh, is the late braking. Yes, that we can go on to that. We, it depends. We can either go on to the the, um, the mechanical side, or we can go to the old school side. Like the 60s. Let's go old school. Okay. Let's go old school. So let's, 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 t- let's take you back to 30 years before me and Sam were born. And, <laughs> and, and maybe more. So this is what we, we, we call the old school methods of overtaking, which was literally power versus chassis. Um, Ferrari, uh, Enzo Ferrari was famous for saying, um, I can't remember the quote exactly, so if, if it's wrong, I apologise. Um, it was a good chassis only makes up for a, for a rubbish engine or something to that effect. Um, essentially, so Ferrari would always be famous having their big V12s or V10s or whatever the engine format was, having as much power from that as possible to propel the car forward, to make it super quick in a straight line, and the drivers can sort it out in the corners, it'll be fine. Whereas Lotus came along in the 60s uh, with these amazing chassis, these tiny engines, um, which didn't weigh anything at all, and they beat them because they did literally the opposite of what um, the big uh, Ferraris and Brabham's or whatever were doing at the time. Um, so this is where the where we see uh, we see this in multi-class racing to an extent actually um, the, the difference between power or or uh, performance as it were. So uh, mm. let's talk about things you like some classic cars, Sam. Let's talk about. I do. Let's talk about that. And actually, I think a really really good way of illustrating this is by watching classic touring cars. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those races, Sean. Um, yeah. But you would get something like a twelve hundred cc mini against a full Thunderbird. Goodwood Revival is a good example for that. Very good example. Um, and, I mean, for example, the Thunderbird has got a 6-litre V8. The Mini doesn't. <laughs> but the Mini the mini weighs about the same as the Thunderbird's engine. Yeah. Um, so, on the straights, uh, to be fair, at somewhere like Goodwood, the Thunderbird is absolutely rapid down the straights. But then as soon as he gets to the corners, he has to back off because he doesn't have the grip. It wobbles about. Yep. And the minis go past. Yep. Either they go like, I, inside it, outside it. They can go literally anywhere they want. The, the, term, just, run, yeah. the term running circles is literal when it comes to uh, to this, this this kind of example with the, with the old yeah. cars. I mean, I, I read something the other day. Um, a mini racing around Goodwood only has a top speed of about 100, 110 mile an hour. Mm. But their average speed at Goodwood is 90. Yeah. So they're basically flat out the entire lap uh, until they get to that last chicane um, just by the pits there. Yeah. Um, so they just keep their revs up. They keep their momentum. They throw it into the corners and they, they still move around. They're sliding about a bit. But that's because the, the chassis are well sorted. They get through the corners so much faster than like the big American touring cars. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And even things like the Jags that are kind of in the middle can't hold a candle to the minis that just fly past them. Um, and we saw it actually. There was um, oh, I can't remember what, the members meeting just gone. They had a race specifically for minis. It had like ninety entries. Um, or something along those lines, and they had to split it and run it as a heat and an elimination format race because there were so many entries. Nice. Um, it was brilliant, and it was fantastic to watch. I mean, Chris Harris 
of Top Gear and other things, raced in it, among others, because that's what happens at members' meeting. You get the pro-celebrity-style races, which is always quite good fun. Um, and he did very well, but he was saying, even then, that there is nothing better than racing a Mini around Goodwood on a nice day, because it moves about, it gives you really good feedback, yeah. and you win. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 99% of the time absolutely. you will win. That's absolutely, absolutely the case. Uh, the best example I have there is this was a few years ago when um, motorbike racing brought in Moto3 with their single cylinder, um, two, I think it's 250cc single cylinder engine, four stroke. Um, what happened was that uh, in Italy they ran a race at Monza between these little Moto3s with their little tiny engines which just carry corner speed. They're all about um, just holding that, that um, RPM and going through that way. And they held it against the old 125cc bikes. And what, what the 125 two-stroke CC bikes were famous for was being ultra-fast ultra in a straight line. And um, <laughs> the best race I've ever seen in my life because you see that out the corners of, say, Parabolica, all the Moto3s would have a gap of about, I don't know, 10 bike lengths over the 125s, and the, by the time you get to the start-finish line and then down to the first chicane, you just see these rocket ships, <laughs> 125s, just going right past them. And then and they all sort of constantly on the brakes. The, and the under-acceleration on the, the first chicane, the motor-freeze will zip away because they've got four cylinders, they can just go. Four strokes, sorry, they can just go. And the um, and again, the, motor, the 125s will then just catch them again by the time they get to the end of the straight. It was fantastic. I think a Moto3 won, which is very disappointing because I like the 125s. But um, yeah, but that's that's um, precisely the, the sort of example we have of power versus chassis. And uh, also, to, again, that sort of brings us to engine uh, specifications and development and that sort of thing, because that's that's where we're going to sort of end the, the final topics, which are the mechanical sides of the arse we're taking. Um, sort of aside from the chassis, uh, and the engine itself, well I suppose apart from the size of the engine um, there's also different ways in how the engine is built um, the braking systems that are used, the air effects such as the Venturi and ground effects and that's basically going to, and, oh and tyres, very important um, it's going to be, that's yeah. going to be the, the last um, things we discuss so where would you like to start on that one, so let's, let's keep it engine side yeah let's keep it engine side then, let's uh... Let's talk about your gearing yes. and what you should be doing going into a corner. Okay. So, obviously, depending on how tight the corner is, let's assume for the time being that it's a hairpin. It's a right-hand hairpin yep. coming off of a very long straight. So you're going to be up in your higher rev range in 6 or 5 or whatever your top gear is, probably. Yep. Um, you're going to get on the brakes and you've got to shift down. Now, most racing cars now, obviously, have paddle shift gearboxes or sequential. Um now, what they do, which is quite clever, is as you change down, it blips the throttle, and you do hear it. Um, that is essentially to try and bring some balance into the car, because obviously as you hit the brakes, all the weight moves forward, the nose dips, and the rear end goes light. It's then very, very easy to lock the rear wheels and spin. Um, you don't want that, obviously. No. So that's where the... the the blip as you change down helps because that just levels the playing field. If you think of it like a seesaw, if you think of the car as like sitting on a seesaw, when you press the gas, the nose lifts and the rear squats. And when you do the brakes, it's the opposite. The nose will dip and the rear comes up. Yep. Okay. Um, so you have to try and consider this when you're coming into a corner. 
how much am I breaking? Where do I need to break? Where is this other guy going to break? And am I going to be able to get through? Yeah. You have to decide early on, am I going to overtake him here or am I going to try it somewhere else? Yeah. Now, that's that's a good topic because breaking, um, particularly now, is a hot topic because you look at between steel brakes, carbon ceramic brakes, and yet yeah, all the other advances that have happened there, reducing brake zones or extending brake zones, depending on how you want to make the formula work. Because um, mm. obviously in the old days, oh, and of course with steel brakes, you had this thing called brake fade, which is when the brakes would get, when the brakes were getting worn, getting hot, they would lose their effect. They would lose their bite as such. So you had to change your, your earlier. yeah, you had to change your braking dynamics and plan that way. Um, so of course braking, yeah, it's, it's 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 a sort of a lot in a way. It's a bit of a lost art. We, we've seen a couple of good examples of late breakers in Formula One these days, with Ricardo and uh, sometimes Verstappen when he's not crashing into people. Um, but um, yeah, braking is definitely. A, um, a very important part of when it comes to something like a hairpin. Um, yeah, so obviously, yeah, this, 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 so when it comes to carbon versus um, steel, what used to be the case is that when it rained, you did not want to touch carbon brakes <laughs> because no, they, you they, couldn't get the temperature in them to exactly, work effectively. Exactly. Um, so you'd often see sort of in, this in MotoGP for example like 10 years ago if it rained you'd just see the, the faces of horror on, on some mechanics who had the carbon carbon discs on their bikes um, and then like just maniacally trying to change them back to steel um, which was always fun and uh, yeah so there, there are definitely arguments sometimes for steel brakes because of course it does increase the braking distance you do get brake fade which does it even more and that allows for more variation in the in the overtaking zone yeah, as i say they're a lot more linear as well in their in their usage until they start to get too hot yeah whereas carbon ceramic have quite a narrow window of effective uh usage yeah so they have to be hot if they're too hot they're not great but they need to be up to temperature before they really do a lot. Yeah. Um, a lot of racing brake systems are like that. And cold brakes, for example, if you're coming off of a safety car period or at the beginning of the race or things like that, you could have cold brakes or cold tyres, and that's going to affect your braking as well. Uh, and potentially you're overtaking. So it's one of those things where you have to, you can't just do the same every single lap and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, I've driven pro carts, so the twin engine endurance carts. I've driven a few of them now from a, few, a couple of manufacturers um, and they all usually run what's, what's called a Kelgate, which is a, one of the brake manufacturers, a Kelgate brake system. But there's uh, a couple I've used that are different systems. And the main comparison, the main, well, the main difference that I've found between the Kelgate and the other brands, because there was two or three others, I can't remember which they were exactly. Um, the main difference I found was the Kelgate, once it was up to temperature, was a lot better. But it took a couple of laps to get hot. Yeah. At, at Rye House, there's only really two braking points where you're braking quite hard. Um, and that seems to the, the hairpin and maybe a bit of a blip as you go around the right hand or a pile on one. So yeah. hairpin one and pile on one. Um, especially in the pro carts, it's more about momentum carrying. Yeah. Um, so 
what I found is nobody warned me, of course. <laughs> I, w I went out on lap one on cold tyres, got to hairpin one, pressed the brakes, and it was a really long pedal and nothing really happened. And I overshot the corner, nearly went on the grass. Um, and then after that, thought, okay, well, let's just back that off a little bit. Maybe these brakes aren't quite as good as I thought they were. And then it, the problem was, because I wasn't ready for it, it then took me a couple of laps to get back into my rhythm. Yeah. Once they were warm, they were fine, and I could break where I was expecting to break. If anything, I probably could have probably braked a little bit later, um, but it wasn't my car, and I didn't want to break it. So I was braking fairly conservatively. Uh, but equally, on the flip side of that, they use quite a hard compound of brake pad because it lasts better in the race, because I think the race is four hours. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would, I'm guessing here, but I would imagine something like a WEC car would run a different compound of brake to a Formula One car. Yeah, definitely. Because they have to run for longer and be more linear more of the time. Whereas in Formula One, it just needs to be fast and then stop. Yeah. For a less amount of time, yeah. You might have higher loads, but yeah, you have, there's always it's always a trade-off balance, and that's where braking becomes very important. So with certain cars, obviously with different weights, with different um, power deliveries, different drivers, different braking techniques, um, braking, of course, is where you get one of the differentiators in, in, in overtaking full stop. You know, irrelevant, irrelevant of DRS and push to pass. Um, you could, if, if you're no good on the brakes and you're braking 100 metres earlier than the guy you want to overtake, you're probably not going to overtake them. No. Um, unless, of course, they lock up. Um, so, yeah, braking to be important. And that, this, this, this is brilliant. They're all tying in. So the, la the last sort of mechanical point is, um, of course, tyre grip and tyre wear and the differential between new tyres and old tyres and what that can do for overtaking. Because often, yeah. when you have old tyres, depending on how they are, if they're much older, you're, they're probably not going to be able to brake as, 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 um, as early because they'll lock up and your career straight on. Absolutely. Equally, if they're brand new, they might need a bit of scrubbing before exactly. they're effective. Exactly. Um, so you might not so much in really high levels of racing, but in certainly in karting, you'll see drivers on their outlap, if they're on brand new tyres, really trying to scrub them in and generate some temperature to take that top layer of rubber off so that they're actually going to be grippy enough Um for either when the race starts or if it was mid-race which is a lot less common in things like karting changing tires um the yeah the grip isn't there straight away and the drivers know they know that nine times out of ten they know that so when they're coming out of the pits they they won't challenge anyone too hard for a lap or so until they're up to temperature and then they're good Mm -hmm. um, on things like uh, sprint racing, certainly in karting, where the races are maybe 10 minutes, um, a lot of drivers will use brand new tyres at the beginning of the day, certainly. Um, and then depending on what the rules are, they might use another set later in the day just before the finals or something like that because they're not doing as much work for the time. So although they'll be racing a lot harder, they're only racing for 10 minutes yeah. and then they go and they cool down and then they've got to make the temperature up again. Yeah. So really the tyres are okay. I know that a lot of sort of club level series uh, will restrict tyre usage. So you can't use a brand new set of tyres for every single session. Mm -hmm. 
that's as much as anything a cost factor. They don't want the, the richest guy to be the fastest because yeah. he's got brand new tyres every time. Yeah, I mean, even, um, even Formula 2, I think, they, they only use like two sets of tyres through the whole weekend or something some, something similar to that these days. Um, yeah. Cost effectiveness. But you do still see, obviously, with different compounds and different uh, wear rates, you do still see the, the big differences in, in tyre performance and tyre um, and, and therefore the ability to overtake when you're coming from behind. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, if you've got superior grip, you can try and overtake on someone with less grip in, a, in an area that you might not usually try. Yeah. Um, I mean, for example, when you came down to watch my Lotus Cup race, Sean, for example, there was one that I did. Um, this wasn't necessarily due to tyre wear, but it was more the circuit awareness and things, which is another factor that you need to consider. Mm-hmm. Um where I went around the outside of two cars um, coming into another corner. And because I'd gone around the outside of the left-hander, I then had the apex of the right-hander that yeah. was immediately after. Um, it was one of the best overtakes I think I've ever done. Um, but it, it worked because I knew the circuit was going to be there, I knew the grip was going to be there, and I knew that I was going faster than the guys ahead of me because I'd seen them further up the road i'd closed the gap in such a way that i knew if i could get past them at this corner yeah i was going to get the run on them all the way through that flat out section that followed exactly um and it was a little bit sketchy not gonna lie it was a drying track and i had to venture onto the damper part but again track conditions generally speaking there's a bit more grip around the outside of a corner if it's wet so I knew that although that part of the track was wet and I'd actually managed to get my tyres up to temperature by this point because most of the track was dry, that there would be some grip there. So I gave it a go and it, it worked Quite this out. time. Um, and I've tried again and it does work. <laughs> um, I, I now sort of teach that as an overtaking point where I wouldn't have done before necessarily. Um well, certainly around the outside, if you've got the speed deficit or the speed differential, you definitely can do it now. Yeah. Um, it just took that giving it a go. And that, as much as anything, comes into your overtaking as well, that you need to just occasionally, you've just got to bite the bullet and go. Yeah. I think um, Daniel Ricciardo summed it up with his quote, sometimes you've just got to lick the stamp and send it, <laughs> which is great. I love oh, that quote. Uh, but actually encapsulates exactly what you've got to do sometimes yeah. just to get the job done. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I think that, that is a key part. The The art of overtaking is more often than not, not the driver. Um, it's it's literally you've got to be brave. You've got to have the car, the car under you or bike or car or whatever it is. Um, and you have to... Yeah, you have to understand all these different factors which we've discussed today, um, be it technique, be it the mechanical side, um, be it, you know, we haven't really touched on it, but be it the DRS or push to pass, um, if you need that extra boost to, to line up to do all these other moves, um, you know, they, they all intertwine together. And at the end of the day, if you're not a, a driver who's going to be able to make the, the use of the tools to you, you're not going to be able to overtake. No, exactly right. Yeah, so... Um, I mean that's yeah. I mean, we, as I say, we haven't spoken too much about DRS push pass, but essentially DRS is is essentially a the means of Formula One to make it so that the, all these different um, methods can be enacted more often. Push to pass is very similar as well. But that's very much a 
Uh, that's going back to the sort of power advantage, but um, sort of in a limited sense. Um, and yeah, basically, those all those those two ideas do is enable because because obviously with, with the, the advancement of aerodynamics, you have more dirty air than you did say forty years ago. Um, essentially, those two methods are just to try and neutralise that a bit more to keep the overtaking up. Um, but they are they they're, they're very they're very much a um, as we said originally, I think an unnatural method of overtaking. So um, I mean, yeah, and I think that um, that sort of you you see you notice the difference when you then go and watch a series that doesn't have those but is limited in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so you watch sort of touring car level or a junior formula races where they won't have DRS or push to pass and they've just got to try it. Yeah. But there's a lot less downforce, admittedly, so there's a lot less dirty air and they can follow a bit closer. Yeah. Um, but also the sort of the, the, the youthfulness of the drivers, I think that's the right word, where they're that bit younger, they kind of, they're a bit less experienced, they make a few more mistakes and that can warrant sometimes a few more overtakes, Absolutely. so they might lock up into a corner or run a bit wide because they're not quite as polished and perfection drivers <laughs> like you would get in Formula 1 yep. or up, up at that highest level um, where they are hitting every single apex on every single lap of a 70 lap race they'll miss a couple of apexes and that can open the door and that's as much as anything that's what we were saying about looking at the driver ahead of you look at where they make those mistakes think about how am I going to capitalize on that and just try and think as far ahead as you possibly can you should always be thinking three quarters ahead of where you are yeah definitely definitely because then you can line yourself up a lot better for an overtake at that third corner if you're thinking about it a long a longer time in advance yeah. um but then don't be afraid to just give something a go if they run wide on a corner that you weren't expecting them to give it a go yeah drive up the inside see what happens um worst case scenario if they've made a mistake that you'll make one as well and you back as you were yeah um obviously you need to be a little bit careful you don't want to ram ram anybody off the road or end up as we saw with daniel ricardo in baku trying to drive up the inside then locking up and taking both cars with you yeah that obviously is probably going to get you a penalty and then he obviously uh didn't look at his mirrors but that's beside the point as well um but yeah it's it's one of those a lot of it comes down to experience um and a more experienced driver is going to be able to able to overtake in places that you won't even have thought of and that's where you learn from them. If someone overtakes you coming at the around the outside of a corner that you didn't think was possible, You're going to try there must yourself. be a reason. So you should try it. Um, and that's where watching watching motorsport, learning from it, all comes in handy. Um, and I, I say to a lot of my sort of newer drivers, just watch as much racing as you possibly can and learn from it. Yeah. Whether it's karting or World Rallycross is a quite a good one because the races are so short, they have to just try stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, Rallycross, equally, quite a good example of sort of more wet or traction-limited driving techniques. Yep. Things like powering out of corners, um, alternative racing-wise, try and get a better drive out the corner. Um things like that makes it quite interesting to watch um 
but yeah, it's just overtaking is not difficult if you do the right things. Yeah. Um, Learn the basics, understand the, your car, understand your drives, understand the track, and you'll be uh, yeah. you'll be effective. Um, I think that's going to more or less wrap it up here, Sam. We're approaching fifty minutes. I think it has. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could go on for another. It's quite a lot of talk. I know we could go on for hours about this because there are there's a lot of things we haven't mentioned, um, sort of in the intricate details of overtaking. But essentially, it, it, some say it is the dark art, um, but you know, it's it's not really. It's, it's quite it's quite. Simple. So it's not that. It's not really that difficult. No. You just have to put the effort in and learn from your mistakes exactly. and learn from more experience and learn from us listen to this podcast fun. and share with your friends um, otherwise yeah that's going to I think that's going to more or less do it for um, Sam Green Race Engineering episode 5 we'll be back at some point uh, <laughs> but otherwise <laughs> yeah I think that's that's more or less it Sam unless you can make anything else uh, no not that's about it like, make sure you've liked the Race Green Sam, uh, Sam yes Race Green <laughs> Sam Green Race Engineering Facebook page um, there's videos on there and things like that of not only overtaking, but of sim racing and things like that that you can learn from. Yep. Um, and obviously, the Stelvio page, if you found those, you find this podcast, you probably like the page already. But um, yeah, if you don't, make sure you follow that on social media and things like that. Any questions, by all means, comment on this video um, or podcast or whatever it's going to be. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll try and answer them. Very well put. Right then, thanks, Sam, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you.